Okay. <laughs> well, I was just saying that uh, I wasn't sure I needed to preach today, and then the microphone wasn't plugged in. So, more evidence, really. Um, would you pray with me as we turn to God's Word? God, we pray that you would be uh, with us and among us, that we would hear um, your voice speaking to us through these words um, written thousands of years ago, first by the prophet Isaiah, uh, renewed in Jesus' voice and ministry, brought to life in the church. Would you bring them to life in our church and in our lives again this morning and in the many days ahead? We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I say the gospel, what does that mean to you? Is the gospel just a churchy word that doesn't really mean anything at all? Or does it come with a whole load of theological background before you can really explain its meaning? Maybe you happen to know that the word gospel literally just means good news. But what is that good news exactly? Has the good news changed or evolved over time? Is the news contextual, moved by time and place, or is it something far more concrete? When the authors of the New Testament wrote about the gospel, there's lots of gospel, lots of good news, but when they said the gospel, they meant the story of Jesus' incarnation life, death, resurrection, and enthronement. That, that story, and that story alone, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news about him and what he's done for our world. And it's good news because of what it means for the whole world. The Christian gospel is a singular thing, but it's a singular thing with manifold impl implications. It can't easily be put in a box or confined. God coming to us to live like us, how he lived that life, the kind of death that he died, the new life that he was raised to, and the glory that he has received. Well, that's a big story with lots to unpack. And what it means for us, for our church, for this city of Toronto, and for our world, well, that's as complex as we are. Is as big as the world that it speaks to is big. And so throughout these weeks of the resurrection, we will be considering what that gospel means for us and for our world. We will hear about the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ from people with different denominational backgrounds and church traditions, with different life stories and experiences who come to us from different places and I hope that that very familiar story of this good news is stretched in our hearts and our minds as we hear again and again how this gospel means such wide and vast and important things for all people. And how we benefit from the rich diversity of perspectives that are present in the church to see more and more the fullness of this story's continuing impact on our world. The gospel, the story is the same. The impact and the implications, that's what we need to see the fullness of. 
And so we begin this week with an implication of the gospel, which is especially close to my own heart and my own call to ministry. Some people say that pastors really only ever preach one sermon. And I happen to think that my sermon is that the kingdom of God is among us. But Margaret, my wife, she hears me preach and she says my one sermon is that you should care for the poor. And so that's the sermon you're going to hear today. You're going to hear an unvarnished version of my one sermon that you probably heard lots of times before because it shapes my heart, because it means something deep and important to me. And I'll share some more about that later. But where we begin is also what is sometimes called Jesus's mission statement for his earthly ministry. In our reading from Luke's gospel, Jesus is reading in the synagogue. He's reading at church like Jane did so wonderfully for us this morning. And he reads this passage. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is anointed for the purpose of bringing good news to the poor, release for the captives, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, God's favor for all. And I can't think of any better news. This is top of the line good news, and it's why Jesus says he's here. And yet there are still those without enough to sustain themselves in our church and in our city There are still those who long for healing or wholeness. There are still those who are captive and oppressed, even in ways we are increasingly aware of in our own society. How was this scripture then fulfilled? Where is this good news that we're still waiting for? The gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is that full story of his coming, living, dying, rising, and being seated on his throne forever. Jesus seems to connect the good news for the poor with the very work of his life. And in Acts, it is the news of the resurrection which the apostles are giving their testimony to and is then somehow connected to there not being a needy person among them. The apostles give their testimony about the resurrection and there are no needy persons among them. These two things are once again placed side by side. So we must then believe that the resurrection has to be connected to good news for the poor, has to be connected to good news for the blind and the captive specifically, not just in the general ways which Christians can quickly spout off about how the resurrection must be good news. And don't get me wrong. The resurrection of Jesus is tremendously good news for the whole world, for the reconciliation of all things. But there seems to be particular implications of that news, a focused benefit of Jesus' life of gospel, which is specifically for these people. Too many churches repeat over and over and over again how that story of God's work in our world through Jesus is good news because of heaven. It is, that's true. But they miss what it means for us who are still on earth, especially for those who experience life on earth as far closer to hell than to heaven. This, 
This disparity was always my struggle with passages like the ones we heard read today. Many of you have heard bits and pieces of these stories from me um, in the past, but bear with me as I put them together again this morning in a slightly different way. You may know that I grew up in a Pentecostal church, attending weekly with my grandpa. It was in this church that I first learned about Jesus, and being a Pentecostal church, they love the book of Acts. The book of Acts is full of Pentecostal distinctives. It has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a main character, really. It has speaking in tongues. It has many signs and wonders performed by disciples. The book of Acts could well be their whole Bible. I think their church would still be fine. So I knew Acts. But there was always something that confused me. At the back of my mind, this nagging question. Why wasn't this church like the church in Acts? My question was specifically about the verses which we heard read for us today. For all the Holy Spirit and the tongues of fire and the miracles and wonders, the book of Acts also had a church that provided for the poor. And for my family, there was always a need. There were only so many hours in a day my mom could possibly work to provide and cover for the expenses of raising three children. And it almost always came up short at the end of the month. Why wasn't this church like the church I read about? A simple question in a child's mind. Now, this isn't to be too harsh about that church. There was plenty of good there, including how hard they worked every year to raise money to send a whole bunch of neighborhood kids to summer camp. And it's also not just about them, because soon enough, my mom and us kids started to attend a Presbyterian church that was closer to our house. And quite frankly, they weren't like this church either. They had a benevolent fund like we do, and they helped us from time to time. But there are only so many times that you can ask for help before you feel worse for asking than you do for just going without. And that church, they loved my family, and they blessed us in so many ways. But it still wasn't this church from Acts. I still didn't see this implication of the gospel being worked out, that somehow there should be no needy persons among them, It was still missing, still somehow not worked out among us. The connection, that connection between there being no needy persons among them, which sounds like very good news to the poor, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrection that the apostles announce, that connection is that there is a new world announced by Jesus' resurrection. A new world of abundance and not of scarcity. A new world of life and not death. So too, there are new people for that new world. A community of people who seek treasure in heaven, who desire a kingdom where Jesus is king far more than they desire to be rulers of their own trash heaps. What the book of Acts is actually about is reviving an image of the promised land in the Old Testament, where God promises in Deuteronomy, there will, however, be no one in need among you. 
because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession to occupy. The promised land of plenty, the promised land of no more needy, that promised land is meant to be the church, and in Acts, it is being announced to us once more, now made possible because of the living, dying, rising, and finally kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when we read passages like this one in Acts, when we we read statements like no one claimed ownership, private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common, well, when we read that far too often, our first instinct is to begin to explain it away as if it doesn't apply to us because it couldn't possibly work in our world. We like to imagine as if these kinds of decisions and sacrifices were easier in the ancient world, as if it was easier to sell land that your family had worked for generations to provide for a poor person that you only just met. So if you're already doing that work, already doing that work of explaining this away, why it couldn't possibly work for our church, for your life, I want you to stop. Stop doing that work of explaining it away right now. Instead of making a new list of how unrealistic this is, instead consider what a passage like this is inviting you toward. What could this look like for you if you were to pursue this vision of a community without needs wholeheartedly? Some of us, we hear that they held all things in common And we begin to grumble about how this sounds like communism, how Nick is preaching another communist sermon. And I promise you, I'm not. This is truth. This is the kingdom. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ means for our lives. But instead of grumbling about how it sounds like communism, we should be grieved that the only system of government that we know of that sought to provide for the well-being of all people, that there should be no needy among them, also harmed people so deeply. We should ask in what other ways we might be able to pursue this good goal of seeing everything as a gift from God, belonging to God and stewarded for the good of all creation. Note that in this passage, things were not taken by force from these Christians, but they were so inspired by that gospel of Jesus that they give it voluntarily, placing it at the feet of the apostles. And at this too, I've heard some people say, ah, to give voluntarily so much, to entrust it to these religious leaders That sounds like a cult. That sounds like all kinds of stories we've heard before. How hard our hearts are. By no means am I saying that we must do precisely these things today. But what an interesting reaction of our hearts to receive such a beautiful image of compassion, of care and concern within community, and to interpret it so as to find fault wherever possible. Should we not desire to be so moved by Jesus' living, dying, and rising that we too are of one heart and soul? 
And do we not instinctually give and provide to others with whom we are so joined together? Do we not regularly give of our resources, our time, our efforts, our money for the sake of our family and our friends, our dearly loved ones? This should be natural. Yet the unnatural dispositions of our hearts and minds They turn us away from our sisters and brothers. They turn us inward toward ourselves to hoard up treasure for fear of us taking the place of the needy one that we help or are being taken advantage of by the needy or by the church alike. And so it is to us that the 6th century Christian poet Erator asks, what advantage is property? that perishes even though it is guarded. What advantage is property that perishes even though it is guarded? Maybe you don't have these kinds of strong reactions to these texts. Perhaps that is because you find yourself in a situation without property that you're guarding with no vested interest in the way things are now at all. And so your reaction to texts like today's is similar to the way that this text first lodged itself in my mind, which is to critique the church for it, to know all the needs that we have that go unmet by this community and to carry that severe disappointment with us. I've been there. It's not going to be healthy. Instead, we should take up the goal, the goal of good news to the poor, release for the captives, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed. That somehow the community that the life of Jesus has created in us and among us also creates the environment where these things happen in increasing measure. If we take up that goal though we ourselves may be poor, captive, blind, and oppressed, if we take up that goal ourselves, we may in fact help the church to realize its call to do this work more wholeheartedly as we ourselves realize our part in that work. Jesus' life and ministry was meant to provide good news, and especially so for those for whom good news was hard to come by. His gospel is certainly good news for all people, but importantly, some of its implications are especially good, especially joyful, especially healing news for the very people who he first names, the very ones who were lifted up by that early church as others gave freely for their sake. The ones, he gave, the ones who gave did not feel themselves to be made the lesser for having given. But they did so joyfully because great grace was upon them all. Because they knew that the resurrection of Jesus meant a better world was possible and would soon be theirs. The gospel of Jesus still invites us to know that good news for ourselves that Jesus is king and his better world is coming. And having been so convinced of that truth, 
to allow ourselves to act on it in ways that make it more obviously true now and today. That in our lives and our neighborhoods, in our church and in our homes, that we might be so desire that there would be no, no one in need among us, that we would move with God's Spirit to see that happen. Friends of Jesus, brothers and sisters, people of the gospel, most truly in our lives and by our prayers, may God's kingdom come. Amen. I want to invite you to spend some time to reflect on how these passages of scripture and these words stir your hearts. And so the reflection questions are invitations that are quite simple. The first is, if you feel any resistance to the good vision of the church in Acts, spend some time to pray about that, to uncover why is it that you feel the way that you do. And then the second question is, how is Jesus calling you to more wholeheartedly pursue a church and a world where there is no one in need among us? Spend the next couple of minutes reflecting and hearing the Spirit speak.